Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Heron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode number 198 of How Do You Write? I'm Rachel Heron. I am thrilled that you are here with me today. Today, I am talking to the marvelous Joshua Bennett, who is a poet as well as many other kinds of writing uh, that he does. He's just um, an incredible person. I was really honored to get an early look at his new book, Ode, and I can just guarantee you that you're going to love the conversation. So stay tuned for that. This will be a quick recap because I've had some coffee. I feel kind of weird today going in a bunch of different directions, perhaps because I'm not going in a single direction. Uh, This week, I turned in um, a final revision of Hush Little Baby. A good friend of mine, Carrie Luna, and I just chatted and she said she's working on her scalpel revision. And I love that. I was just doing my scalpel revision, which is that very last final, making everything perfect. So I sent that in on Monday. I sent out a Patreon essay on Monday, and I started three new 90 Days to Done classes also on Monday. So um, this week has been about finishes and starts, and it's Thursday as I record this, and I'm kind of tired. I'm kind of brain dead. Um... I am excited to have the book off my plate for a little bit and to go back into working on what I am calling now, You're Already Ready. That's the new title for Replenish. Um, Working on that. The news broke last week. I think I mentioned it in the show last week, but The Writer's Well is no more. Uh, So Jay Thorne and I are not doing our podcast, The Writer's Well, anymore. Um, we're still besties. Everything is good, but, uh, it has been really nice to be hearing from people who loved the show. And I just wanted to thank you very sincerely for watching it. (laughs) I guess you never watched it. It was always just audio, not like this show for listening for years. Um, for those of you who did, it was really, really fun. Um, yeah. So, mourning that a little bit, but not mourning the loss of Jay, because I'm going to talk to him on Monday, and he's got lots of things to tell me. So that's great. I wanted to quickly thank new patrons, because what happened is the writers, well, we closed it, but we had patrons over there, and we invited people to come support us at our own Patreons, and some people have done that. I never expected it, and it is really, really nice. So I would like to thank new patrons, uh, Nicole Knightley, Rosie Radcliffe, I might have thanked you guys last week. Uh, Claire Chandler upped her pledge. Thanks, Claire. That's so nice of you. Um, Michelle Maida also upped her pledge. Thank you. Jeremy Neander, who was a patron over at the Writer's Well. Thanks, Jeremy. Amanda Ward. Thank you very much. Sue Roth edited her pledge up. Amazing. Um, Oh, these two names are completely hidden from me. Oh, Kim Barton. Hello, Kim. Thank you so much. And this one's also a little bit hidden from me. Wanami L. Spencer. Thanks, Wanami. That's amazing. Thank you so, so much, everybody. If you ever want to look at what I'm offering, you can always go over to patreon.com slash Rachel. There's some cool things there. However, the thing that I'm always most excited about is those essays that I get to write and then put in two collections of books and then get to share with you. So that is work I really enjoy. What else is going on around here? Uh, I went for a run this morning. 
because Jay has been influencing me in that. He has become a runner. I used to be a runner. If you're watching the YouTube video, you can see that I'm wearing my Honolulu Marathon finisher shirt. I don't wear this very often because I need this shirt to last for the rest of my life because I'm never doing another marathon. I've done two, never doing another one. Uh, it was fabulous. This shirt, I need to um, point out, is old enough to have a driver's license. It was 16 years ago that I did that marathon. I can't believe that. I'm 48, so I was only 32. And there's a part of me that's saying, why are you trying to run? I just really, really like running. So I am starting out with something, and I think Jay told me about this. Um, it's called None to Run. <laughs> Not a nun in a habit, but N-O-N-E, None to Run. It is a little bit slower than Couch to 5K because I have tried to get back into running using Couch to 5K apps. And they're a little bit too fast and I end up messing up my knees or shin splints. So none to run is a little bit slower. And I tried it this morning and it was dang easy. I, I, I have to admit, I didn't even break a sweat. So that's an awesome way to run, uh, to start getting back into it. Even though there was some running, no sweating that will change. But, um, if anybody is thinking about getting into a running program, number one, consult your doctor. Number two, maybe none to run is for you. Just Google it. It will come right up. So without further ado, let's get into this interview with Joshua, which I am so pleased and proud to bring you. Um, like I said, this book blew me away. I usually only read two or three books of poetry a year um, because I'm so intimidated by poetry and because it moves me so much. I'm a little bit scared of it, honestly. And I kind of show that in this interview. You will hear me kind of displaying that... Um, the caution that I feel around the incredibly huge surges of emotion and meaning that can come through poetry in a way that is, I believe, inaccessible in other mediums. So uh, have a good time with this interview. Thanks so much for listening. And I wish you all very happy writing. Hey, is resistance keeping you from writing? Are you looking for an actual writing community in which you can make goals and be held accountable for them? Join Rachel Says Write, a twice-weekly, two-hour writing session on Zoom. You can bop in and out of the writing room as your schedule needs, but for just $39 a month, you can write up to four hours a week with our wonderful little community in which you'll actually get to know your writing peers. We write from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. on Tuesdays and 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. on Thursdays, and that's U.S. Pacific Standard Time. Go to rachelheron.com slash write to find out more. Well, I could not be more pleased today to welcome to the show Joshua Bennett. Hello, Joshua. Welcome. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me. I am thrilled to have you. Um, we share a publisher, and my publisher sent me your book, and it blew me away. Um, I spent an evening lost in it. So I'm so glad that you're here and you're going to share a little bit with us, but I'll give you an introduction first and then we'll start chatting. Uh, poet, performer, and scholar Joshua Bennett is the author of the just released book of poetry, Ode, which speaks to the expansive range of registers within the world of black aesthetics and experience, the joy, rage, love, terror, and awe that gives a world within a world all the shape and tenor. 
He received his PhD in English from Princeton University and is currently Mellon Assistant Professor of English and Creative Writing at Dartmouth. His writing has been published in the New York Times Magazine, the Paris Review, Poetry, and elsewhere. His book, Being Property, Once Myself, Blackness and the End of Man, was published by Harvard University Press in May 2020. His first work of narrative nonfiction, Spoken World, a Cultural history is forthcoming from Kanaf, and he lives in Boston. You ha- let's start off with you've had a really freaking busy year. Yeah, no, there's a lot going on. There's a lot sure. going on. And did I read in something that the publisher sent me that did, are you about to have a baby? Yeah, in the next couple of weeks. Oh my goodness! <laughs> so you've had two books come out, mm-hmm. one forthcoming, mm-hmm. a baby on the way, a global pandemic, yeah. the country in racial uprising. And you speaking to that, like, how, how are you doing today? Let's not well, talk about how are you doing, but how are you doing like today? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm all right today. Today I'm preparing, you know, start teaching in two weeks. A oh, little under now, right? Uh, getting ready to teach this modern Black American literature class. Uh, uh, getting my son's nursery ready. I mean, so there's, there's like the real singular joy of that. And I just had a book come out yesterday. So there's joy in the mist. Yeah. yeah, yeah, a beautiful, beautiful, important book. Would you read us a poem from it, please? Of course. Uh, so this poem is a, a favorite of mine, in, in part just during the pandemic. I think one of the things that I've missed most is barber shops. So this oh, is Oh, I love this one. Yes. Barber song. Postmodern blackness, blacksmith. Straight razor reshaping self-esteem. You dream in geometries unreachable by any other means. Speak, an entire phrases abandon standard American etymology, hence. You liberate waves from the sea, corn rows from the cornfield. Reclaim fade, so I now hear the word and imagine only abundance. Caesar never meant anything to me, but a cut so close, you could see the shimmer of a man's thinking. You are how we first learned to bend language built to unmake us, accept implausible risk. Some much older man, shaver in hand like a baton full of wasps gossip, asking with the grain or against. And the question feels damn near existential. Given this is the only place we can live in such thoughtless proximity to another person's open hands, be held by the face, ask outright to be made glamorous, shaped by your polymathic brilliance, you bi-weekly psychoanalyst, first stop before funeral, before wedding and block party alike, you soothsayer, cooing children to calm as they sit in the chair for the first time, as still a storm as one might reasonably expect, you ethicist, defending hairlines at all costs, your vigilance keeping online and otherwise slander at bay. Philosopher King, the source in the drawer, dominoes and scotch and barbasol adorning your countertop, right above the chorus line of clippers swaying to the clamor of checkmates and offhand insults now filling the shop, each moving as if the unfettered locks of some great metal monster, some faraway watcher, and you, guardian of it all, clean as a pope. <laughs> Uh, listeners, so what just happened to your brain is what happens to your brain when you read this book, Ode. Um, I live in East Oakland, and there's a black barbershop like just at the end of my block, and it's called the Pull Up Your Pants Barbershop. And he will, gi- he will, he will give you a belt 
if you walk in without a belt. Um, it's, it's, but, and it's obviously, obviously not my place. It is not a place for me to partake in any of this. So, so actually getting to listen to your voice mm. makes me feel like I do when I walk past, like real slowly with my ear open, just trying, mm-hmm. because it, it, it strikes me as this magical poets, poet, scholar, Pope place of learning. Um, so that's, that's gorgeous. So you as a writer, this show is about writing mm-hmm. as process and finding our process in the midst of life. You do so many things. How do you get the damn writing done? That's what I would like to know. Well, that's a great question. I, knowing that everything might change in two weeks when you have a baby and you're teaching. <laughs> for sure, for sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've just been going hard every single day. I mean, I write every day, uh, if not a poem, a line, uh, an idea, a grant proposal, something. I mean, I always try to get just language on the page. Um, usually, for a long time, I wrote at the dining room table behind me, but my wife asked me to stop doing that, so I'm just going to stop doing that. I have stopped doing it. Mm-hmm. Hi, honey, in case you're listening <laughs> or later. Uh, right now, no. Okay, <laughs> let me ask you: Why did she stop doing it? Was it because of the faces you would make when you did it, or do you talk to the computer? Or that's a great question. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, and she's great with this. I mean, the dining room table is for eating, so I, I think she just has tried to help me organize yeah. you know, my life and space around it. She's like, "Don't write during meals. Like, get you know, this is you can rest sometimes. You can." watch TV, you can read yeah. the pleasure and all that kind of stuff. So no, I just do my best to write every day and uh, just try to make music out of it, you know, whether it's something I overhear someone saying in a restaurant historically, or there's a passage in a book, you know, that really resonates with me. Like almost all the titles of my books, for instance, come from passages of, of thinkers uh, that matter a lot to me. So, yeah. So you write narrative nonfiction, you write nonfiction, uh, literary criticism mm-hmm. and poetry. What, I, I'm I'm leading the witness, but what what has your heart the most? Is it poetry or is it something else? Or I know you it's like you know which kid is your favorite, but that's uh, tough. Uh, well, it's not tough. I mean, it, it's tough to say maybe because we're not supposed to outright state preferences like this in some ways. But no, I mean poetry will always be my home genre. It'll always be my heart, in no small part because it was first. You know, sort of mm. the first. Um, re- poets I ever saw were preachers, and I still regard that as a certain form. Of poetry. Um, one of my favorite thinkers, Hortense Spillers, brilliant uh, Black feminist critical theorist. I found her dissertation uh, about two years ago. And in the beginning, she makes this argument that the Black preacher on the plantation were sort of the first uh, poets of the Black community. And so it was this incredible moment thinking that against my own childhood and my own upbringing. And uh, whenever I feel like the criticism or the nonfiction is dry or the language isn't there, I always turn to the poems uh, to electrify it and to bring it back to life. So... It's, it's a, I'm a, I'm a poet first and foremost, you know, I have, I have a hero worship of poets if that's not already coming through because I am not a poet. And even when I was in grad school, the one poetry class they made us take, right. You had to do one outside your, your, um, your major. And, uh, and I remember them telling me, no, you just, you can't write fiction in a poem. There's gotta be some poetry in there. Mm-hmm. So, so, and so when someone does it as, as beautifully as you do, it's just really inspiring to me. So thank you for sharing that. Um, what is the biggest challenge you have when it comes to writing of any type? The biggest challenge I have when it comes to writing of any type. It's funny. I was asked a question like this recently and I feel bad. I don't, it just, it feels good. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess the, the challenge of, of writing for me soon will be time yeah. for sure. 
But if I can be completely honest, I mean, writing has been such an intimate part of my life for as long as I can remember. Mm. I mean, since I was about four or five years old, I wrote short stories, I wrote poems, I improvised sermons off the top of my head. And I was in a really tight knit, super weird family culture where people made space for all that stuff. Like they would listen to the whole 40 minutes of the improvised sermon of the seven-year-old boy. They would gather around me in the dining room and they would just let me go. How um, beautiful is that? It's incredible. No, definitely great notes, you know, in parenting very early in that experience. But it was, uh, I mean, in one way, it was a kind of countervailing narrative, right, to the, the school system I was a part of where I was told when I was five, I would never function in a classroom, you know, and uh, that my daydreaming was a problem. But then in the home space, my parents really just kind of left me alone. And they were like, Josh is writing. You know, I'm a little boy. I'm five, six years old, right? And so for me, writing is that it's a liberatory space. You know, I think I have an issue like we all do with kind of putting it out into the world sometimes. But the actual writing itself, I'm very comfortable with it not being good, if I can be completely honest. I have poems that just... They're not swinging, you know? Everything doesn't swing that you put on the page. And that, that's fine. And I, I really mean that. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's made a, a big difference as I get older and have to go through a bunch of drafts to get to something like this book, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm acquainted with it and it, it doesn't scare me. You know, the page is home. Yeah, the, the page is home. Failure to me doesn't matter on the page. It's the, it's the repeated process of going back. I, I, I eat failure for breakfast because I fail basically every single day. And every couple, couple days I get a line or two, that's okay. You know? Mm, um, yeah. what is, so along those lines, you probably already, you've just described some joy, but what's your, what's your biggest joy, if you had to name it, when it comes to writing? Yeah, I mean, the biggest joy for me is, um, huh, well, actually, let me think about this from a slightly different angle. Recently, it's actually been the real life discovery of something that might become a poem later. So for example, my wife and I, our doula is named Perpetual. Oh my gosh, that's a novel. There's a whole novel right there. Right. And the moment she said her name, it, it wasn't that, oh, I'm going to put this in a poem. It was just the, the nature of the interaction and the revelation and even the kind of doula she is. I think seeing that story unfold in real time felt like it was giving me another instrument to write with, uh, whether or not that actual detail ever got in a poem, right? Like there was something that was yeah. happening where I felt like, it was all the threads in the universe coming together in a certain kind of way. So I think that's the joy of writing for me is having a moment where I feel like my writerly imagination adds a little spice yes. uh, to my actual phenomenological experience. You know, that, that, that's been part for me. To putting all those pieces together inside a life. Yeah. What, what is the thing, is there a thing in your life that affects your writing in a surprising way? Mm. Maybe, maybe your wife telling you to move the computer. <laughs> Yeah, right. To go, go relax. <laughs> yeah, I mean, being, being in love will, will do it. I mean, I think oh. um, the realization that being smart is not the most important thing in the world. Don't um, tell me that. that. No, I reject. No. <laughs> I, just, I kid you not. I just got there like a, a year ago, maybe even a couple months, really. And I think for me, it was a defensive posture for most of my life, right? That uh, it was a weapon, again, largely that my mother kind of honed in me, right? You have to be bright, you have to be eloquent, and this for you is a way to move through the world. It's a kind of armor um, against uh, narratives that will project onto you and ways that people will try to hurt you, right? And uh, part of what I think happened is that um, becoming a writer and a scholar, I internalized that defensive posture uh, and I made it a kind of mission to just be you know, the brightest, sharpest, most rigorous, and it's just not... I, that's just not the measure of a human life. 
Um, and I think in part through my relationship with my wife and my close friends and, and colleagues, I think I found various other strands of uh, human experience that just mean a great deal to me. So this is a this is an intimate question, but do you think you would have come to the same realization if you hadn't? And please forgive me for saying this, but like made it PhD from Princeton, like you're teaching at Dartmouth, you've got all these, like, would you have come there if you were still struggling to get there? Maybe not. That's a great sort of material conditions question. Yeah. I mean, I think it was really when I got to Harvard, if I can be honest, it was in the society of fellows, this kind of elite group within an elite group, you know, these 12 people selected every year from all across the world to eat together for three years and write books. And I'm with paleontologists and astronomers who are eating together three times a week. Um, and I think just the realization that what made me happiest was actually getting to, to know these people mm. um, in so many ways. And just, it was the sharing of the ideas again. It almost really felt like being a kid. Um, and when you're on the playground and no one has money, so you trade skills. Yeah. Like I was fairly good at telling time and my best friend Danny was really good at helping me not get beat up. You know, and we kind of exchanged, you know, those goods. Um, and that was the foundation of our friendship for a while is mutual aid and the understanding that we need each other. So, yeah, I mean, I think especially my uh, success as, as a young professional scholar and writer helped me realize. And actually, even before that, when I was doing the spoken word stuff and touring the world and was financially independent and was getting stopped on the street and was at the White House. I mean, the night I performed at the White House, I sort of sat alone in my hotel room as a 20 year old and realized you know, uh, this can't be all that I do. Like I kind of hit the pinnacle of, like of my career as a 20 year old and I realized there had to be something else. And I think that was, I'm really thankful for that every single day. Um, being famous on the internet or well-known is, is not, it just can't be the end all be all because there's really nothing in that um, that'll sustain you. It's pretty great that you got that early and not, you know, when you were 72 and, you know. <laughs> so are you still friends with those Harvard 12 that you were with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's 36 of us in total in it okay. every year, maybe 12. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm cool with the other uh, junior fellows. Uh, oh, people are very sweet. They checked in on me and, you know, we keep up with each other on Facebook and stuff. So people know that the baby's on the way and oh, it's good. It's such an interesting image to me. Um, can you, moving back to writing, can you share any kind of craft tip with us? Ooh, a craft, any craft. tip. Yeah. Yeah. Just hey, read books. You know, I think yeah, that's, that's a good one. <laughs> well, yeah. so again, this is actually part of my uh, ongoing issue as a, as a self-taught person, you know, is that I, I didn't come through an MFA program. I came up through poetry slam and through reading yeah. books. And that, that was how I learned how a line should look on the page, how yeah. it should sound, the kind of subject matter that compels me to sit down and write. It comes from those experiences, you know? And so, for me, when I, you know, because I teach both creative writing and sort of literary theory at Dartmouth, and I'm always telling my students, of course, your, your feelings can be a sort of primary impetus to get to the page, but why wouldn't sort of historical research or um, these other narratives outside of you sort of give texture and tenor and shape and form uh, to what we're doing to give it stakes, right, to make sure there's blood in it. And that, that's the best craft uh, advice I think I've not gotten, that's the best craft advice I've given. The best craft advice I've gotten is from Gregory Pardlow who told me to use all of my Englishes. Mm -hmm. And I think him telling me that felt like permission to use both the kind of um, theoretical language of the academy and the vernacular language. That is really how I sound in my head. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just didn't feel like those could ever collide in a meaningful way. I was always worried it would feel performative or that I would, wouldn't be a good representation of the race or something um, if, if I wasn't 
writing in a particular way every time I sat down. And I feel like Greg helped liberate me from that. I was just going to say, what a liberation. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. teachers will do that. Yeah. So speaking of books, what <laughs> I always like to like narrow things down to, you know, an essential one. What's the best book you've read recently? And recently it can be in the last, you know, five years, but, but what is the book you want to tell us about? The book I want to tell you all about, oh, that's tough. Cause I write about this in my new book. So I spent so much time with it, but probably Song of Solomon uh, by Toni Morrison. I mean, that, that's a book I always talk to people about just because it was so transformative for my life. It changed the way I thought about uh, masculinity, um, about love and care, about religion, about, parenthood if i can be completely frank mm. and redemption there's so many different kinds of redemption happening in that book um and morrison doesn't really let us go she doesn't let us off the hook another really good book that i read last week is the voice of the children anthology that uh, june jordan put together uh in the early 70s she used to host a workshop for children at church of the open door in brooklyn and uh, anthologize all their work at the end of the year and i was just sitting down with these poems i mean one was written by a girl named vanessa howard who I think might have been 14 or 15 years old. It's called Monument in Black. And it's just this gorgeous opening stanza about putting her parents on money. It was like, put my father's black, what is it? It's like, put my father's black smile on the penny or something, I think is the opening. And it's just this, I don't know. It's just a gorgeous image to me um, because she doesn't even want, she doesn't even make the radical move to say there are historical figures that are understudied that should be on the currency. It's like about everyday people, you know? Those are her heroes, is the people on her block, the people in her home. So um, that, that's an incredible book. And, I and think those voice, uh, voices of what? Voices of the children. Voices of the children. Great. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I'll put the link in the show notes for that. Okay, so will you tell us now about, number one, where we can find you on the internet, and number two, tell us a little bit about Ode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can and find how me you on the came that, how that How that all came together. Sorry to interrupt you. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, you're fine. You can find me on the internet mostly. I do most of my thinking out loud on Twitter. So at Sir Josh Bennett, uh, that's also my Instagram handle. And then I have a Facebook fan page that you could just find by searching Joshua Bennett, uh, poet Facebook. How did Ode come about? Well, one stormy night in uh, <laughs> 2016. Yeah, I was at the Cave Conum retreat, actually. This, this is really what happened, and it might have been stormy that night. Uh, the Cave Conum retreat in 2016. And I uh, had Willie Perdomo's workshop the next day. So part of how Cave Condom works, and I don't think I'm giving away too many trade secrets here, but you have to write a, write a new poem every day. Mm. And, uh, I was sitting down and I'd been in a kind of old space, like a celebratory space in the writing. And I knew I wanted to write a poem about my big sister um, and everything she taught me, which was everything from how to write and read to how to fight. Um, and how to do long division. So I wanted to get that all onto the page and it became not just about celebrating my sister in that occasion, but what was owed to her, right? It felt like the poem was actually a way of traversing that space um, between my love for her and this tremendous debt that I felt like I, I'd, I'd owed uh, this woman who helped shape my life. And also the little girl who helped shape my life, you know, when we were both little kids. And so that's how it began. The first ode I wrote was Ode to Pedagogy. It's the second poem in the book. And then from there, I just thought about it as a larger project. What would it look like to create an aesthetics of reparation or to contribute to it rather, right? I invent this stuff. But, but my idea was that, let's of course think about um, physical reparations as the material redistribution of wealth. But what about the kind of soul work, the symbolic work, the literary work that has to be done alongside that to really counteract all the negative images of blackness uh, that we all inherit, 
right? And that we all internalize, right? So that, that I wanted to think about that as, as my contribution through this book. And you do such a gorgeous job of doing this with your father too. And he's kind of this touch stone all the way through. He's even on the cover. He's the yeah. one holding you, right? Okay. Yeah, that's bad. It's such yeah. a great, and, and you know what's really embarrassing, and I'm just going to admit this to you right now, is this is so much of a, a poetry lover and a non-poetry understander that I am. I didn't understand until you were just saying these things out loud that ode is a play on words. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I only saw it as O-W-E-D, so I would like to share that with the listeners. If you're just listening in your car, it's not O-D-E, which makes absolute sense, but the, mm. the play on that is so gorgeous. And then ending the book with your father, too. Yeah. Ugh. What a what a what a gift um, this book is! Thank you so much for being on the show, and thank you for speaking so openly. And the book just came out yesterday. May it fly from the virtual shelves. I hope that you're having a wonderful time promoting it, and I hope that you're getting um, the praise that is your due. Mm, thank you, Rachel. That means a lot. Thank and you for good. being you. Oh, you're welcome. Um, good. I'm so excited for your son too. Welcome oh, to him. Yeah. Welcome to him when he gets here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna he's, go. He's I'm gonna go stalk you on um, Instagram just so I can see pictures. Of oh, you. sure. No, no, no. I'll be posted up. I'm gonna have a little baby sling, and he's gonna be in the front, and I'm gonna be annoying. I can't wait. Please, Please. be annoying. There's nothing like Instagram is for you know cute dog pics and and babies. That's what it's for. And baby. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. There, there Thanks, Joshua, so much. All right. Yeah, Take care. And a pleasure. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of How Do You Write. You can reach me on Twitter, Rachel Heron, or at my website, rachelheron.com. You can also support me on Patreon and get essays on living your creative life for as little as a buck an essay at patreon.com slash Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And do sign up for my free weekly newsletter of encouragement to writers at rachelheron.com slash write. Now go to your desk and create your own process. Get to writing, my friends.